All right, psychology nerds, and welcome to a special episode of Psychology and Stuff, the podcast out of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. I'm Allison Jane Martingano, the new host of Psychology and Stuff, and I'm here with not one, not two, but six fabulous guests from the UWGB psychology department who will talk to us today about thriving in academia. Regular listeners will spot some familiar faces as well as some new ones, uh, and I'm going to ask you all uh, to wave when I introduce you. So we have, in no particular order, Dr. Jason Cowell. Jason is a professor and vice chair of the psychology department. He studies the neural development of moral judgment, moral action, theory of mind, empathy, self-control, and pro-social behavior in childhood, adolescence, and adulthood. He's a regular guest on the Psychology and Stuff podcast. Thanks so much for coming back, Jason. My pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invite. Next up, we have Dr. Georgina Wilson-Denges. She's my boss, the chair of the UW-Green Bay Psychology Program, a statistician and environmental psychologist. Regular listeners will know her as the previous host of Psychology and Stuff. I know her as the person I go to across the corridor for advice on everything. Thanks so much for being here, Georgina. Oh, it's so much fun to be here. So thanks for the invite. Next up, we have Dr. Abigail Neocon Bailey, who joined the psychology department the same time as I did. She's a developmental psychologist, and her research focuses on healthy aging and middle-aged and older adults with a focus on physical development. I haven't had the pleasure of having you on the show before, Abby, so I'm so, so thrilled to have you here today. Thank you. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Dr. Chelsea Wooding is next. Chelsea appeared for the first time on our most recent episode of the Psychology and Stuff podcast, so regular listeners will already know she's a former competitive dancer and a certified mental performance consultant. And this semester, she joined the UWGB graduate program in sport, exercise, and performance psychology as an assistant professor. I'm thrilled to have you here again, Chelsea. So excited to be back and honored to learn from such amazing colleagues. Thanks for having me. Next up, we have Dr. Thomas Scratton. Tom is also a certified mental health performance consultant and also joined the UWGB graduate program in sport, exercise, and performance psychology as an assistant professor this semester. Tom is also a licensed mental health counselor. Thanks so much for joining us, Tom. Thanks very much. Looking forward to it. And finally, but not least, Dr. Ryan Martin, e.g. the anger professor. Ryan is the dean of the College of Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences here at UWGB. He's also my boss. I'm actually realizing that I have all of my bosses on this call in separate capacities. Uh, but more importantly, uh, Ryan is the founding host of the Psychology and Stuff podcast. And I'm sure regular listeners will be as happy as I am to have you back for today's show. Thank you so much. They're probably not as happy as I am to be back. So this is a special podcast episode which aims to explore evidence-based strategies that our psychology faculty can recommend for you to use to support yourselves and others to thrive. Uh, I'm looking forward to hearing all of your insights from your respective fields, as well as how you personally apply these ideas to flourish. To make things a little bit more fun, uh, I'm going to spin uh, a wheel to choose who I'm going to be interviewing. Uh, so let me uh, get out that wheel. Just so you all know, when I submitted this podcast to be part of the Instructional Development Institute, I said that it would be an enlightening podcast episode featuring candid interviews with the UWGB psychology faculty. So that's what you've got to live up to uh, in these interviews. All right, I'm going to go ahead and spin the wheel and see who our first victim is. All right. It's Ryan. Okay. So Ryan, everyone else actually did their homework for this uh, podcast and wrote a couple of sentences uh, in our shared Google document to prepare to tell me what they'd be talking about, but you did not. 
Yes, that is correct. <laughs> Wait, was that so, a question? Is that uh, yeah? So I'm going to start with okay. what's your strategy for thriving? Um, one, I'm going to say for other people that that my strategy should have been to better read my emails. Um, <laughs> however, in this case, my my uh, my actual strategy is going to be rooted in in my research and the courses I teach, and it's for people to pay close attention to their emotions and to think about how those emotions are either informing their success or serving potentially as a barrier to their success. And so to be a little bit more specific about that, it's, it's, it's like how you need to be feeling in order to do some of your best work and then being intentional about um, one, recognizing when you're feeling that way and being able to capitalize that on that, but also being able to put yourself in uh, a mood that will allow you to do your best work. All right. So, Ryan, what are the moods that allow us to thrive and do our best work? A couple things there. One is, you know, our, our emotions don't occur in a vacuum. We can be feeling lots of things at the, at the same time. And so um, so that is one thing to keep in mind. The, the other piece is the mood we need to be um in when we're uh, doing this work actually depends on the work we're doing. For instance, um, I, I do some of my best work uh, when I, especially when it comes to like writing and things like that, when I'm up against a little bit of a deadline, right? So there's some anxiety there that drives drives that performance. And so I need a little bit of that deadline to, to be able to thrive. Um, at the same time, I, I do se separate from my day job, I do some humor writing. Um, I I do my best work there when I'm in a good mood, right? When I'm feeling happy. And so that happiness drives uh, that, uh, um, that the, the comedy there. I was not expecting you to tell me I should be more anxious. That was that <laughs> I'm, I'm reflecting on it. But I think what you're actually saying is we need to be cognizant and aware of what mood is most productive for us as individuals. And that might not be the same for everybody. And that might not be the same for each task we do in our lives. Yes, that is exactly correct, right? The the task uh, really and, and individual differences really dictate a lot of that. Ryan, I would love to hear a little bit more about strategies you would recommend for people to hold space for those more difficult emotions. Um, that when I build awareness and pay attention to an emotion, if it's an emotion that I've been taught is quote unquote bad or negative, or even that doesn't feel as good, how, what strategies do you have for people to allow or give permission to themselves to authentically feel that? that? That's a really, really good question, because I think one of the challenges that people have is, um, and, and this is true of a, a, a lot of people, is being able to sit in some emotional discomfort. It's really, really hard for people to do. They quickly want to get themselves out of that. Um, and I tend to think about it in the same way I think sometimes about exercise, uh, meaning that some of the the changes that can we can achieve through the benefits of exercise actually require us to stay in moments of discomfort, maybe a little bit longer than we want to, um, to see some of those physical health benefits. I think the same thing's true with emotion: is that we can be intentional about saying, you know what, I have to be, I have to sit with some of this sadness or grief or anger for a little bit longer. Um, that I'm typically comfortable with in order to to sort of get used to it, get acclimated to it and and learn to to work through it and learn ultimately to use it in my in my productivity or in my my writing. Awesome. So Ryan, just one last question before we move on. How do we change our mood when we find ourselves in a non-productive mood? 
Great question. And so, I mean, I think some of it, it this is going to differ individually as well, too, right? Because everybody's got different sort of uh, triggers and and things like that that tend to to get us there. I, I think that one of the, you know, we we can embrace media at times, right? And so if you're, you know, I'll go back to the, you're trying to put yourself in a in a good mood. I don't think there's anything wrong with going to YouTube and watching some, you know, puppy videos or whatever, whatever it takes, right? Um, if, if you actually find yourself, you know, another example would be if you find yourself saying, you know what, I need a little bit of a deadline right now, well, then start, um, or I need to be a little bit anxious, start thinking about that deadline, don't avoid it, but actually be willing to sit with that anxiety um, as, as a way of getting there. And oftentimes, people want to do the opposite in that situation. Great, some good practical strategies there. So I will highlight my deadlines in my in my date book. All right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna spin this wheel again. All right, Jason, you're up. So Jason, I'm particularly interested in this one. You're gonna talk to us about how giving to charity can help our emotional and mental health. So please tell us more. It's something that uh, you, in introducing me, you talked about morality and empathy, broadly speaking. And uh, I think one of the, one of the pieces uh, that's important to think about is how giving or doing things for others can oftentimes have a stress buffering effect on us. So there's really cool evidence in um, in aging adults that uh, volunteering after retirement, et cetera, ends up uh, producing, well, reward-based aspects in them, but also social support, uh, longer mental and physical health benefits, et cetera. And what fascinated me is we know that that provides kind of social structures that people can get into in, in later life, but there are a series of studies coming out recently that are actually measuring um, things like cortisol in the system. So a stress uh, hormone in the system to look at if in our most stressful times, if we start to engage in helping others, does it actually start to buffer our stress? It seems like it does. There's some pretty good evidence that just starting to help others, and that can be through giving to charities that can be in monetary ways. But a lot of times it's giving of ourselves, giving some kind of uh, skill, talent, time to coaching teams, to singing in choirs, to engaging with the community can actually have the opposite effect that you would think, which is you start in and you're going, I'm stressed. I have so much on my plate. I can't take on more. And in reality, taking on that one other thing that we can find validation, additional identity and uh, joy through oftentimes ends up buffering the stress that we're having in our lives. So this this is really cool. So so every, listeners to the to the podcast regularly will know that I'm also interested in empathy. So we have some the synergy here, Jason. So I'm what you're saying is making me think about the study I read a while ago um, with older adults who would experience like a serious stressful event, like a, a job loss or a death of a loved one or something, and they were more likely to die within the next five years, which you might expect, except for those who also helped their loved ones and they didn't have that that impact. So is that the sort of thing you're talking about? That's exactly. And like I was saying, I think a lot of the research for, for quite some time has been in aging adults and finding social structures, happiness and purpose. Uh, but I think it applies so much to, to everyone um, from some of the studies are starting with 18 to 26 year olds and finding really comparable effects where it's engaging in uh, things that are outside that primary thing you're doing. So for us, it would be outside of being a professor. What are the other things that can help scaffold our identity, give us additional social support, but also just bring us joy? 
Yeah. Wow. I, I'm, I'm really starting to realize this is turning into a counterintuitive podcast. So be anxious and add more things to your to-do list as long as it's helping others. Two, two great strategies for, for thriving there. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jason. All right. I'm going to go ahead and uh, spin the wheel here. Oh, it's me. I'm going to hand posting duties over to Georgina for this part. Absolutely. Um, so, Allison Jane, tell us a little bit about what you are considering uh, as a method to help us thrive. Sure. Well, actually, I'm realizing that it overlaps a little bit with what Jason was talking about, because my strategy is to show empathy, to empathize. And, and, and showing empathy towards others has been shown to improve both mental and physical well-being. Um, although clearly it would be maladaptive to focus on the needs of others to the point of neglecting your own basic needs, but generally speaking, focusing on yourself is toxic for mental health, whereas shifting attention towards others can reduce anxiety and, and stress, as Jason was talking about, uh, especially if you're focusing on people who are worse off uh, than yourself. Uh, and, and this uh, is a third strategy that might seem counterintuitive. Unfortunately, there are countless blogs and news articles and social media posts that seem to connect highly empathic people with greater levels of burnout. And that really bugs me because the overwhelming scientific consensus is that empathy actually protects against burnout. In fact, in my own research, I conducted a meta-analysis and found that, generally speaking at least, people who have the highest levels of burnout are the least, uh, sorry, the highest levels of empathy are the least likely to burn out. And this finding is consistent across various ages, genders, professions, nationalities. And so it really seems like empathy uh, is, a, is a benefit to our well-being. I wonder if um, this goes against the common thought about like self-care as a way um, to thrive. Do you think that that it, it opposes that thought? Yeah, yeah. So I think this is the reason why this, this sort of myth continues is that the logical response to believing that empathy causes burnout is to, to limit your empathizing and therefore uh, triggering emotional situations uh, because you think that you need to focus on yourself in order uh, to thrive. And, and kind of the same way that Jason was saying, actually taking that step to, to not focus on yourself, which feels like a little bit extra work, can actually lead to, to more positive returns, both for yourself and, of course, for the, the people, the other people who are going to benefit from your empathic support, your friends, your family, etc. Um, and so it really seems that those who are at risk of burnout would actually be better advised to, to put that effort in to take other people's perspectives and to empathize with them. Can you learn? how to be more empathic? Oh, I love this question because yes, yes, you can. Uh, so there's lots of different ways that, that we can learn to improve our empathy, which all pretty much boils down to practice, 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 uh, either practice in person with real people and real conversations or practice uh, in fictional settings. So you can, you can practice your empathy skills. You know, while reading a book, especially if you're reading a book with your child, you can ask your child, you know, hey, what's this character thinking? What do you think they're feeling at this moment? And that's a, an opportunity to, to practice empathizing in, in fictional settings as well. So I, I think there, there's lots of opportunities. And if we put that extra little bit of effort into to focusing on others and the needs of others, that'll actually uh, help our mental health and well-being as well. Thanks. That was amazing. Thank you. All right, I'll go ahead and spin my wheel again. 
All right, it's you, Georgina. Yay! So, Georgina, <laughs> you're going to talk to us about the benefits of small daily moments of awe. So, what on earth is awe, and how can we use it to our advantage? Um, this is something that I study when I'm, um, as an environmental psychologist, thinking about the benefits of nature. And one of the amazing benefits of nature is it provides for us uh, a sense of awe. And awe is um, sort of a, a transcending kind of um, way of state of being uh, where you are appreciating something uh, that is larger than yourself. And um, the really cool thing about experiencing awe is that it changes the way that we um, perceive time. And it actually um, expands our sense of time. And um, in research studies where uh, participants are looking at like amazing like mountain ranges and, or um, beautiful sunsets, uh, things like that, uh, that they actually report feeling like they had so much more time at their disposal. And so I think, wow, isn't that great? as like a faculty or as students or just as humans in this world um, to be able to feel like you have an expanded sense of time uh, to appreciate the, the beauty on the planet and um, the successes of others, sort of experiencing empathy like uh, you and Jason were talking about or experiencing your own emotions, um, having that sense of of time is pretty cool it doesn't take much the awe method a w e uh, is that you focus your attention on things that you value or find beautiful slow down and pause that's the weight the w and then lastly exhale and expand so um, take time to like sort of sit in that emotion like ryan was talking about um, to establish that. That's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> that was not an intended joke. I feel that was really corny. Uh, so, so Georgina, could you give us a few more examples about how we can, how we can do this, how we can bring awe into our daily lives? Cause I feel like I go from the office to the car park, to my apartment and back again. And I, and I often don't feel like awe is a part of my day-to-day -day life. So, so how could I just in small ways, bring that in? Uh, that is an excellent question. And it is actually something that I try and practice every single day. And like all the rest of them, it takes practice to notice the small uh, things of beauty in your everyday life. And so, you know, walking from the car park, as you call it, I would call it a parking lot, but whatever, uh, <laughs> walking from the parking lot to our building, uh, we get to walk through a field um, that is sometimes filled with amazingly beautiful flowers. Uh, there's a huge wasp's nest. And although I don't love wasps, I find that their nest that they built is actually awesome. Like it's an amazing little piece of architecture. And so like just taking the time to notice small things that are in your daily life uh, that bring you joy and to take the time to pause, pay attention to it 
and allow it to expand the moment from 10 seconds can feel like two minutes. Uh, that's a gift that you give yourself every day. Georgina, following up on this, because I think a lot of us park in the parking lot to do the nature or attention walk, et cetera. And about half the time that I'm leaving, I'm stewing. There's something going on in my head. I hit the start of the of that path. And at no point do I go, I need to pop. How do you flexibly switch? How do I get to that point where it is an actually beneficial nature walk and not just me walking my car as fast as I can? Yes. And I think that it it, it takes um, just that pause, that like momentary um, stopping and like practicing paying attention. And it, it is sort of like the empathy that uh, both you and Alison Jane were talking about, where you have to get outside of your own head and out into the world to look for these um, pieces of awe in your life. And I think that it helps us look outside of ourselves. And so you can leave behind your worries and your ruminations and focus on something that's external to you. Uh, and the research shows that it actually makes people um, more concerned about others, more empathetic uh, when they practice awe on a daily basis. Excellent. Thank you so much, Georgina. Uh, I'm going to go ahead uh, and spin my wheel again. All right, so uh, Chelsea, um, I'm really intrigued uh, by what you wrote here in our in our in our notes for this uh, podcast because you wrote that we can't actually multitask. So I'd love for you to tell me what we can do uh, and how does slowing down help? Thanks so much, Allison Jane. Uh, before I jump in and start talking, probably way too much, I want to invite all of us here and the listeners to just take a breath, an inhale and an exhale. And actually, I am going to elaborate on something that Georgina just brought up. It was like, it was planned that I was going to go next or something. Um, really, when we're thinking about thriving, the thing that came to mind for me is slowing down. When One of the things that we know from the performance psychology literature is when stress goes up, anxiety goes up, activation goes up, our attention turns more internal and our attention gets more and more narrow. And so things like paying attention to my emotions, things like empathizing with other people, things like paying attention to the environment around me becomes so much more difficult because my attention is so, so focused internally. And so, yes, unfortunately, I hate to say it, and I hope listeners are sitting down, and if I get some hate mail, I completely understand it. Unfortunately, multitasking is not really a thing. Now, I will say a slight caveat, there is about 1% to 2% of the population who can actually multitask. Problem is about 98% of us think we're in that 1% to 2% rather than actually being in that 1% to 2%. When we're multitasking, what we're actually doing is just taking our attention and shifting it very, very quickly from one thing to another, likely very ineffectively. And so instead of being really intentional with the limited attention I have and giving that full attention to one thing, doing that thing well, and then again, really deliberately and intentionally switching, multitasking means I'm just trying to rush and switch my attention so fast that the quality of work I'm doing inevitably goes down. So when we can slow down, it not only helps us 
be more productive, which to your point, so many of these sound counterintuitive. But uh, my spouse taught me a phrase actually that he learned from the military, slow is smooth and smooth is fast. I don't know about you all, when I get anxious or when I'm running late and I'm rushing through everything, it actually ends up taking me so much longer to get out of the house because I forgot something in the bedroom and I forgot to do this and I forgot to do that. So I have to go back. It actually happened to me this morning. I forgot my phone at home. I had to turn around and go back home. So when we slow down and we're intentional, when we recognize, am I getting distracted? Am I where I need to be? Am I doing what I need to be doing in this moment? I actually become so much more productive and efficient because I'm not wasting as much energy. And the other thing that slowing down does is it actually helps give us access to our full brain because when we're rushing, when we get kicked into that sympathetic nervous system, when we're in that fight or flight, when we're super anxious, most of the time we're living more in our emotional brain, our limbic system. So slowing down doesn't necessarily mean we get out of that fight or flight, but I love Allison Jane that you brought up cortisol. Instead of more cortisol getting released, it actually releases epinephrine and norepinephrine, those adrenaline hormones, the hormones that wake us up, activate us, get us moving. So once again, we can actually be more intentional, more productive, and move forward the way that we want to. So again, counterintuitive, but if we want to thrive, slowing down can help us perhaps increase the chances of getting there. Wow, Chelsea, uh, thank you. I actually, I felt it when you got us to do that activity and and take a breath. I, I felt the sort of the the calm just come over me. Uh, I think that's a another just point that it can be a really short little little thing that you do, and it can have a big effect. I wonder um, how is it connected to breathing specifically? Yeah, thank you so much for asking that question. When we get stressed, when we get activated, when we get anxious, our breathing inherently changes. Um, our breathing gets shallower, it gets uh, less rhythmic, it gets more into our chest versus in our belly. And all of that tells our brain something's wrong. All of that tells our brain, oh no, we're we're not running from a bear, but it's that same kind of fear and, and anxiety. And so the, the more activated we get, the more changes happen to our breathing, which then feeds that activation and that anxiety. And so one of the strategies and full transparency, Allison Jane, that breath was just as much for me as it was for everybody listening and watching right now, because things like this terrify me. Uh, but even a single breath where we're slowing down and can I move that breath even slightly into my belly versus being so high in my chest? Can I count my breath with a four count in and a four count out? And that one breath, again, being really purposeful with it can sometimes make a big difference. Sometimes we need three, sometimes we need five, sometimes one breath isn't quite enough. But even taking three rhythmic breaths really only takes 15 to 20 seconds and can make a huge difference. And so I love, thank you so much for asking that question, Georgina, because that anxiety and stress response are directly connected to these physiological changes, including our breath. And if we can make an intentional choice to try to change that, it can help us regulate a little bit more. Really interesting, uh, Chelsea. I, it was making me think a lot about the idea of, um, or the experience of um, like attentional residue where we have when we switch tasks quickly, we find that our ability to complete the second task is lower because we're still thinking about the first. And 
I wondered what your recommendations would be for someone who does need to stop a task to be able to move on to something. How do they close out a task and avoid that residue that, like you rightly say, is depleted for the second task, really? Oh, Tom, with the tough questions. All right. Unfortunately, those students who have had me in class know my answer is going to be, it depends. It depends on the person. It depends on the situation. It depends on the task. If it's a really, it's a task that requires a lot of emotional labor, mental labor, physical labor, it might take longer to transition than something that really wasn't that laborious or wasn't that intense for me. It depends on the person and my bandwidth, my capacity that day. Given that we are in the last week of classes, moving into finals week, I am in what I lovingly refer to as grading purgatory. My capacity right now is limited. And so my transition might take a little bit more time because I my cup isn't as full. So what I will say, some things to think through, and I'm going to steal this from Ryan. Can we pay attention? Can we pay attention to that I am struggling? Can we pay attention to that residue? Can I honestly recognize that is there? And then once I'm honest about it, what do I need to do? And we don't often think about this, but I'm going to steal something from performance psychology. We often talk up to athletes and performers about ending well, ending a race well, ending a game well, ending a performance well. We don't always apply that in work settings. How do I end this round of grading well to transition to start teaching well? How do I end this recording well? to transition to advising well uh, and, and actually thinking through what does a post-performance routine look like for me in this setting? It might be as simple as standing up, walking up and down our C-wing, which many of you have seen me do, and I apologize for the distraction that might be, but pacing for a little bit. And then when I sit down, I've changed hats. So changing location. It could be actually physically changing the space that I'm in. It could be closing my eyes, taking a few breaths. There's a lot of different ways that we can go about doing that. So we each need to identify our own strategy. But I think really building that awareness first and then being intentional with how we do it is a, a good starting point. Thank you so much, Chelsea. I really appreciate it. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and uh, spin my wheel uh, for what I think might be the last time. All right, Abby, so your research focuses on the benefits of physical activity. Please tell us more about how that helps us thrive. So in comparison to others um, that were a bit counterintuitive, mine's pretty intuitive. <laughs> um, so I guess sorry about that. But uh, so I'm going to focus on physical activity, which uh, is a main focus of my research. Um, overall, I try to prioritize physical activity. I do this in my own life. Um, I do this when I teach. Um, and that's because it's such an important health promoting behavior. So I want to share just one quote from Margie Lackman, who is um, a significant, a big researcher in this field. Uh, she said physical activity engagement has been established as the single most effective non-pharmacological, non-invasive, and cost-effective method to promote healthy aging. And we see this. There are so many different benefits to physical activity. We see benefits um, for our physical health, our mental health, our cognitive health. Um, yet we see that the majority of adults are not meeting 
the overall recommendations for physical activity, which kind of a two part here. It's either 150 minutes of moderate intensity physical activity a week or 75 minutes of vigorous intensity physical activity um, a week. And then at least two days of muscle strengthening activities. So we see that roughly only about 24% um, of adults aged 18 and above are meeting those guidelines. So um, that's something big that's having researchers such as myself asking why, what's going on. And similar to what a lot of my colleagues have been talking about, uh, having this awareness um, and just being able to practice and taking time to prioritize it. And so in part, when I'm teaching, first, I want to bring awareness to the fact that we see all these benefits, we know it's so good, but also talking about barriers that we know, um, at least for some people, are preventing them or limiting them from being physically active. So um, trying to, to do that when I'm teaching and then also to carry through, not just talk a big game, but also to be physically active myself. Um, which I think is really important um, as well, even when it comes to those benefits, helping me to cope, uh, to relieve some stress, lots of good things. Thanks so much, Abby. So I, 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 I'm so glad that you mentioned this one. Um, I think it is a bit more intuitive. We, we all know that we should be moving. Uh, we should be exercising more. Um, but I wonder if you could give us a few practical practical strategies for how to build that in, in a way that really will stick and not do the whole, oh, it's January, I'm going to start a new fitness regime, which will end by February. Right, absolutely. And that's something that we do end up hearing a lot, right? Like people will start the new year with this intention of, I'm going to be physically active. And so um, we hear just from word of mouth that in the gyms, it's packed in January. And then over time, it starts to get a little a little less busy. And there are probably some different reasons as to why. Um, one of them, I mean, we're still looking at barriers to it, self-efficacy. Some of my own work really focuses on views of aging, especially as we get into middle-aged, older adults. But also some of it could be people are not prioritizing that physical activity. And one really big piece, I think, too, is um, setting goals. And there are a lot of different um, methods uh, to try to help people set goals. Smart goals is one. But really, I think one of the important pieces, maybe one of the most important pieces, um, is to uh, create realistic and attainable goals. You know, you don't want to create a goal that's going to be so hard to achieve that you're not reaching it or you're not meeting your sub goals. And then you're just going to feel maybe a bit bad about yourself. And that can be really hard then to continue on that goal. So you do need to be really aware and realistic about what is feasible for you to work on. Of course, you want to choose something that's safe for you. Probably something that you enjoy doing is helpful. That's Otherwise, you know, if you don't like doing it, then that probably will not be as easy than doing it over time. So like for myself, I, I do enjoy being active. Um, I really like weightlifting. And so that's easier for me to do. Don't um, historically love cardio as much, but I've found ways to enjoy it more. So not only is it my time to just kind of refresh and to think about the day because I'll work out when I get home from work. But I watch my show while I'm running. 
um, or doing my incline walk or uh, whatever it is. And so I enjoy that and it works out because then I'm also getting my cardio in, especially if I have a really good show, that's ideal. And so just setting those goals, um, being really aware, being also mindful of your abilities, you want to do something that's safe and just making sure you set time aside so that you can set yourself up for success. And this is something, so I taught health psychology this semester. And so um, my students had a big project where they chose a health behavior they wanted to focus on and work to um, increase that health behavior. And so a lot of people chose physical activity. I did it with them. And so mine was physical activity um, because I was working more on my cardio this year. And so we talk a lot about setting goals, checking in, keeping logs, also talking to others, having that support uh, can also be really important. And that's been found in the literature too. Um, so hopefully this also is kind of setting students up to continue their health behaviors, um, some of them choosing physical activity. Great. Thank you so much, Abby, for sharing that with us. Uh, so we're going to go uh, to our last speaker now. Uh, so Tom, you're going to speak to us about how both safety and challenges can help us to thrive, which is intriguing to me. Uh, so please tell us more. Well, well, firstly, I, I'll try and follow everybody else's uh, rather insightful uh, knowledge and comments. But I think when I when I saw that we were doing this on sort of thriving, I my first thought went straight to our sort of misunderstanding around safety and threat. And I think you know, in our field of sport performance psychology, we we hear a lot of people praising this idea of getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. And it's a bit of a soundbite and and it's nice to hear, but I think we sometimes miss what it really means. And I think being able to experience the uncomfortable and thrive from that really comes from an ability to alter the way we perceive safety and the way that we perceive threat. Um and so a lot of what I'll share is sort of based on my experiences in high performance, as well as research on psych safety and uh, rest. But what we typically find in the research when we think about safety is that it's normally understood as quite a siloed and separate experience. We have psychological safety and cultural safety and social safety and physical safety, and they're all looked at in sort of different ways. And we often see that well, we often perceive that safety is sort of the opposite of threat. So if I feel safe, then I feel comforted and secure. I feel protected from potential suffering. And if we feel threat, we, of course, typically feel the opposite. But if we're to really experience thriving, I think our perception has to be that these two are not mutually exclusive. In fact, they are their partners. They respond to one another. And uh, we have every right to experience each of those in order to experience ultimately growth. Um, and so that's kind of what I wanted to focus on. I feel that by altering our perception of how these two interact, I think we can achieve thriving more frequently and in more depth as well. I, I think it's interesting that you brought up with that, that getting comfortable with being uncomfortable, because I've definitely heard people people say yeah. that. So what are the nuances there? What is it important that we do when we're, we're balancing these two that maybe isn't captured by that? Yeah, well, well, firstly, I don't see it as a balance in the moment. They are they are sort of spaces that you move back and forth between. They're like 
bases that you go towards um, and then you retreat from them and go to the to the other. So they're exclusive in the sense that we move in and out of them, but they are essential for one another to function. Um, so when we think about safety, for example, and existing in a space of safety, we can think about the benefits being, you know, uh, getting connection through vulnerability, having an opportunity for reflection and contemplation, we can think about safety as being opportunities for us to think about the future. If we move into challenge, we, we are typically trying to push ourselves, extend our capabilities through new experiences and all these kinds of things. And I guess the nuance is really that in order for us to be able to experience safety, uh, we have to leave challenge and experience challenge. And in order for us to experience challenge, we need to recover and reflect through safety. And uh, these can look uh, different in for different people and for different moments. Sometimes they're sort of physical experiences or maybe they're with other people. Um, and I guess how we create that um, uh, can really vary on, on the person. In terms of my experiences trying to create the differences um, and how maybe I try to practice the separation of the two and how they work together as well, I think the first thing to consider is how we're framing the experience that's upcoming. So if we, for example, if we meet a new client or we're working with a new uh, a new individual or a new group, we can frame the experience as being an opportunity for challenge where we are expanding our capabilities, but in the knowledge that after that experience, we can retreat to safety to reflect on that and to learn from that. So how we frame upcoming experiences is critical. I think another way to pass out the nuance something I do personally is I try to schedule my day or my days in two distinct parts. I have parts of my day that I experience safety and parts of my day where I experience threat. And knowing that the two interact with one another allows me to experience them more fully, like kind of what Chelsea's saying, because I know that they come to an end and then I can focus on the other experience shortly after. And I guess the final thing that I would maybe recommend to help with passing out the nuances asking the question about how I improve and who are the people that can help me improve in those different environments. So if I'm craving safety, if I'm craving an opportunity to reflect, who will help me do that with vulnerability and compassion and connectedness? But if I'm craving self-development and self-improvement, who are the people that are going to push me uh, and make me think, think critically and all these kinds of things? So I think those are some ways that we can create it or pass out the nuance and again, what you know, ultimately these two coexist. It's just a movement between the two throughout our days and throughout our lives, really. Wow, thank you so much for explaining that, Tom. I've, I've never thought of the activities in my day and as as splitting them up and thinking about them as as safe experiences yeah. and challenging experiences. Yeah. Uh, and I and that that's a new way for me to sort of think about how I'm scheduling my day. So, a sort of follow up question to that: Would you encourage uh, the folks listening to this podcast to? When you're planning out your day to to interdisperse, uh, you know, if you know you have a couple of challenging things you have to do to make sure you have space for a safe environment or experience, or is it more about just tuning into your body and 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 rather than scheduling? I guess I'm not sure if I'm making that question clear, but is it scheduling or sort of more in the moment? I, I think what you're asking reminds me of a, a book by Cal Newport called Deep Work. And in that book, it talks about how we organize our time and there's people that can work through two or three tasks kind of one after the other and there's people that have to have time where it's only concentrated on one thing for an extended period and I think that's kind of what your question is making me think of 
because for me personally and some of the people I work with, having discrete, organized, scheduled times for threat and the experience of threat and challenge is really important so that A, they're not caught off guard as much as they can be, although in performance that's natural to be caught off guard sometimes. Um, but secondly, it's because then they know that once they've completed that experience of engaging in challenge, they again have the safety to return to. So I see it as being something that we should be scheduling as a part of our lives. And I think it relates a lot to deep work in the sense that we can decide how we structure our daily routines and our daily existence based on this coexistence of safety and, and threat or safety and challenge. Thank you so much, Tom. I, I think that brings us to the end of our, our interviews for everyone. Uh, so thank you all so much. Uh, so to, to sum up uh, for our listeners, uh, you want to slow down, empathize, give to others, find awe in your environment, use your emotions to your advantage, move and embrace both safety and challenges in order to thrive. I want to give a huge thank you again to all my wonderful colleagues for coming on to Psychology and Stuff and sharing their thriving strategies. I know I'll be applying these in my daily life, and I hope our listeners will too. Psychology and Stuff is a production of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. The executive producer is Ryan Martin, and the production manager is Rachel Scray. Our audio production coordinator is Bill Salick, and our graphic designer is Kimberly Belise. Special thanks to our guest today. If you haven't already, please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. You can also head over to our website, uwgb.edu slash podcasts, to check out past episodes of this and all of our shows. I'm your host, Allison Jane Martingano. Keep being amazing.